This is Chris. Welcome to episode 216 of X-Lapsed, or uh, maybe it's episode, uh, I don't know, 15 or 20 of uh, Podcasting with Allergies. <laughs> this is, uh, it's been a rough go at it this morning, trying to uh, trying to get some words out of this mouth without uh, grunting or snorting or uh, just uh, being befuddled by uh, seasonal, uh, seasonal allergies, I suppose. But uh, today, we're going to be taking a sidebar. From the Hellfire Gala proper, uh, simply because, uh, well, Marvel told us to read this book next. So, let's get into this uh, sort of kind of side story in Children of the Atom number four. It's had an August 2021 cover date. The story is called Captured, written by Vida Ayala, art by Paco Medina, and uh, I think when we did the unboxing of this month's uh, DCBS box. I was under the impression that Tom Muller was the artist of this one because I, I was going to the Marvel Wiki in order to just fill in, you know, bits and pieces of the scripts here before before my box arrived, so I wouldn't have so much to do when it finally did. And that listed Tom Muller as the penciler of this issue, and alas, he is not. Uh, colors, David Curiel. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Andrus Ballesteros, White, and Sabolski. Cover price $4, on sale June 9 of 2021. Now this time out, um, our internal monologuer is going to be Benjamin Benny Thomas. Uh, We know him as Marvel Guy. And our story opens at Peter Corbeau Prep in Brooklyn, so I'm guessing this is named after Peter Corbeau. Uh, I think up until now it had only been referred to as Corbeau Prep. And I'm pretty sure the signage out in front of the school said that as well. Now Peter's on there, so... uh, I don't know if they, uh, maybe they charged by the letter and they finally did a, maybe they did a bake sale and they were able to buy the, uh, the five letters <laughs> that, uh, spell Peter. So yeah, we got Benny. Uh, he hates people, except for his Kota kin. He thinks, Be- he thinks Buddy's pretty cool. Uh, he thinks Carmen is weird, but also cool. Gabe is the best because everyone loves Gabe. And, uh, JJ, well, he's annoying, but they're stepbrothers, so he'll get a pass. Everybody else on the planet, though, they can suck it. Now, speaking of his pals, here they come now. Benny notes that Carmen is wearing sunglasses inside and asks, what's up? Uh, we don't get an answer, but I'm guessing this has something to do with whatever the hell it was that happened to her last issue, uh, when she was either shape-shifting or brood baby birthing. You remember? She was kind of, like, hunched over and very bizarre. Now, before they can really talk about this, all four of their phones ping. You see, it's a text from JJ informing them of the Hellfire Gala. 
Hmm. Now you see, Krakoa is going to be opening its gates to humans for this one night only. Now Buddy, as you might imagine, is uh, very, very pleased with this. She fist bumps and tells the team that this is going to be their best opportunity to go to Krakoa. Even though the gala is not happening on Krakoa, but I think I've harped on about that uh, well long enough at this point. I don't know if... maybe all the writers don't know. I don't know. But now I do have a question. Now Buddy is like the informational gatekeeper on all things X, right? It's kind of like her gimmick. Now, how does she not know about the Hellfire Gala by now? I mean, it's basically global news. I mean, if JJ knows, you gotta assume that Buddy would know. Oh, well. So Buddy, of course, wants the gang to go. But the rest of her Kota kin are not so sure. Now, she thinks that this is something like an open invite to non-mutants from Krakoa, when, I mean, it's actually not. Uh, there is an invite list, of course. And also, uh, humans passing through the gates is nothing new. We've seen that they could, if accompanied by a mutant, since day one. I mean, House of X number one, Magneto was bringing diplomats from around the world through, through uh, gateways, so... This is something we've known about for a long time. I, I suppose it does stand to reason that maybe the kids didn't know that, but... I don't know. But it is here that we get our first admission from the Coda kids that they are, in fact, human, or at least not mutant. Uh, and I mean, that was like the worst-kept secret of this book, but uh, it's nice to finally have it confirmed. Now, Benny, he goes back to doodling pictures of his favorite mutant, Wolverine. And you know, with a Buddy and a Benny in this book, the script I'm going off of right now that I just wrote is going to be perhaps a little difficult to follow at times. So I want to apologize in advance if I refer to one by the other's name. <laughs> I assure you it's all out of accident and my uh, befuddled mind trying to uh, parse words on a uh, digital sheet. Now just then, Cole arrives in the cafeteria, and I, I guess uh, I should mention that we're in the cafeteria, by the way. Carmen runs up to him to apologize for not showing up to his dinner. Now he is annoyed by the sight of her and tells her to beat it. Now, he's still upset that her mutant groupie friends made such a spectacle uh, that night before. Benny gets in between them and tells Cole to cool his jets. Cole tells them to all just to leave him alone, and in a wild act of maturity, he accuses Benny of having the hot pants for Carmen. A teacher, Mr. Boggs, shouts for the boys to simmer down from across the cafeteria, which diffuses the situation, at least for now. The Kota kids leave. Carmen thanks Benny for uh, standing up to, to Cole for her, uh, but still isn't completely clear on what happened during that dinner party. Now, Benny thinks to himself how he'd like to go back in time before they got wrapped up in all this weird mutant stuff. Double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, our characters are, uh, well, the five characters. Cherub, Marvel Guy, Cyclops Last, Gimmick, and Daycrawler. Now, it's time to go to Flashback Land, which, even though it's pretty clearly a flashback, doesn't actually feel like one. Uh, does that make sense? You know, you ever go into a flashback where it's, like, not immediately apparent that it is one, so you just think it's the, you know, the story continuing? Because this could have easily been mistaken for the next scene, albeit a very confusing one. Anyway, we are at Calvert Vaux Cove, or Vox Cove. This is a real place in Brooklyn, uh, notable for uh, housing many abandoned boats. And we can see that here. There is uh, one abandoned boat here. Anyway, the Coda kids are testing out the bits and bobs of technology in an attempt to replicate mutant abilities. So this is like a very, very beta take on our Coda clan here. This is uh, them just futzing around with um, found technology from the looks of it. 
And uh, we, got, we got Carmen using Cherub's wings here, so they haven't decided on code names or personas just yet. Uh, they're firing lasers at one another. Buddy is bamfing. It's like the world's worst danger room ever. Um, now JJ nearly hits Carmen with a blast from, I want to say the visor that Cyclops last will eventually wear. He's like holding it sort of like a gauntlet or like one of those laser guns that uh, like that the Cobra uh, Vipers would have in the old GI Joe cartoon. It's very bizarre. Now Benny gets right in there and starts reading his kid bro the riot act here. Uh, now when he points to Carmen. A poof of something or another puffs out of his power glove that he's wearing here. I guess we we know that he has or he will exhibit powers over emotions or, or or ways of thinking. So this is where that comes from. He's got these this like hormonal sort of thing in these gloves that he wears, and indeed this does have a sort of hormonal effect on Carmen. And so she pulls Benny in and gives him a big ol' smooch. Now, Gabe tells Carmen that, you know, she really ought to ask for permission before she does something like that. And I wonder if that's how teenagers actually talk now. I, I just don't know. Info page. It's a Vibe Cloud page, which I'm assuming is a take on SoundCloud, like where you can upload your own music and stuff. Now, we have uh, our boy Benny here. He goes by Weapon Extra, and he has an album called Grim Dark Past. <clears throat> okay. Now, the track that we're looking at is called Snicked Snacked, and it features a couple of other performers on it, Dark Colossus and Faintly Frosted Stitches. We're going to find out that Gabe loves him some Colossus, so that's probably him. And we already know that Carmen is Faintly Frosted Stitches, so I guess this is the Coda kids doing uh, the musical thing here. Back to comics, and Carmen is visiting Benny's house. Uh, She's led in by his stepmother, and during this, Benny is still narrating. He thinks back to before his folks got divorced, his life the way it was back then. Uh, he still still isn't over it yet. Um, now, this house looks quite opulent, and his stepmom, Zhao Feng, who's also JJ's mother, uh, seems like a really nice lady. Now, Carmen is directed to the basement, which is where Benny's currently brooding and uh, also beating on his drum set. Now, his drums have the band name Phoenix Force on them, so I guess he doesn't know that the Avengers stole the Phoenix from the X-Men at this point. He's also got a bunch of X-Men fandom stuff on his wall, uh, Wolverine posters, a couple of Deadpool posters. Uh, I guess he doesn't realize that Deadpool's been taken from the X-Books, too. Anyway, Carmen is here to confide in her friend. Now, Benny takes this as her professing her love to him and makes sure to unsubtly let us all know that he's asexual. Carmen laughs... Not at the asexuality, but because she thought it was obvious to everyone that she's a lesbian. Is it, though? Is it is it obvious? I mean, nobody seems to know. Buddy, her best friend, is not pursuing Gabe romantically because she thinks Carmen's into him. Oh, well. Now, Carmen is not here to talk about any of that. She's here to, to confide in him about whatever it was that happened to her at the end of last issue. Before she can get into the details, however, the rest of the Coda crew shows up. Now, Benny makes sure to boot J.J. before getting down to business. So we got our four elder Coda kids here. Now, Buddy, who looks like she just got back from killing Bill, uh, informs the team of her latest harebrained scheme on how to get use these Krakoan gates. Now, you see, during the dinner party at Cole's house, she excused herself to go to the bathroom. But instead of hitting the facilities, she stole one of Cole's jerseys. Now, the plan here is that they'll use Cole's mutant cooties from his jersey to trick the Krakoan gates into letting them pass through. I mean, 
Okay. Don't they already own, like, chunks of Magneto's helmet? I, I could have sworn we saw Carmen, like, win those in an online auction, so... Why do they need Cole's shirt to try this? And, I mean, if, the, if it was this easy... Wouldn't, like, bad guys be... Do- we know that the Legacy House exists. We know that there's mutant stuff everywhere. Wouldn't this just be something that every bad guy did by now? I guess they're kids. They just don't think about that kind of stuff, which I can get on board with. Anyway, nobody else seems to think this is a good idea. Now, Carmen is particularly offended that Buddy is thinking about using, quote, a part of coal in order to do this. I, I don't know that Pit Sweat has to give consent. Uh, is this how teenagers talk? I don't know. Anyway, Buddy is finally able to sway the Coda crew by appealing to their fanboyism and fangirlism. Because if they go to Krakoa, they're going to meet Wolverine, they're going to meet Colossus, they'll meet Mystique, they'll meet all their god-tier mutant idols. And so, they're into it. Info page. It's an extreme webpage, which looks to be a take on YouTube. So I guess Rockstube has a bit of competition in the Marvel U. Um... And, I mean, if only YouTube had a viable competitor in the real world. Anyway, the hot vids all have to do with the young X-Men, and, of course, there is some clickbait there as well. Buddy, as Archivist X, comments on this video, giving the team's code names, you know, Cherub and, and, the, and the like here. JJ replies, saying that Daycrawler is actually going by the name Nighty Nightcrawler, so I guess that's still a thing, despite the fact that our uh, roll call page still calls him Daycrawler. I, it's fine. Um, Now, someone from Cradle also writes in looking for information. Back to comics, and we are once again at the Coney Island Krakoan Gate. Now, they lollygag a bit more about the ethical ramifications of using Cole's pit sweat without its express consent. They come to some sort of half-assed compromise, but in doing so, they wasted so much time that they find themselves surrounded by a bunch of armored types. I initially thought maybe they were Cradle agents, or just, you know, I wasn't sure. I, I really didn't care all that much. So we get a battle, which rages on for, like, two entire pages. Uh, Marvel Guy saves Day Nighty Night Day Day Crawler uh, from being captured, thus being captured himself. Now, J.J. winds up being the only member of the Coda crew to get away. The remaining four are all caught and shackled. Now, we find out that these bad guys think that the Coda kids are actually mutants, and, I mean, at this point, why wouldn't they? Now, they captured the kids so they could harvest their useful parts while disposing of the rest. They're kind of like the U-Men, who we saw during the Morrison run, which mostly serves to remind us that we're not reading anything near as good as that. Now, we wrap up with J.J. recruiting the X-Men, who don't yet exist, into rescuing his friends. Now, the team we see here includes Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Wolverine, Maggot, Storm, Nightcrawler, Magma, and Pixie, so... Quite the odd array. Um, I suppose we might assume that the gala has not yet begun, but that is where we leave it. Next episode, we've got uh, the biggie. we got planet-sized X-Men. I hope you're all looking forward to that as much as I am, if for no other reason than to get it in the rear view and be able to talk about what happened in it. But that is for next time. Uh, let's uh, talk about what, uh, I guess, what little there is to talk about uh, regarding the Children of the Atom here. Um... I mean, everything's subjective, right? Uh, I look at this, and the first thing I can think of is, like... The first question I ask myself is, do we need this? And I mean, of course, this is comics. We really don't need any of it, (laughs) you know? So it's... Everything I'm saying, you know, take with a shaker of salt here. But I'm looking at this, and it's just like... We don't need this. (laughs) This feels like the very definition of bloat. Um, 
I feel like with every issue of this I read, I care less about what happens to these kids. I really have no interest in where they wind up. And I have no confidence that what happens here is going to have any sort of uh, ramifications on the main line here. We've already looked at the solicits, and we know that up until the sixth issue, we're going to still be dealing with Hellfire Gala stuff. So this is a glacially moving book here. And the uh, cover to issue six has um, has gimmick walking through a Krakoan gateway. Which, I mean, do we even need to read the next two issues? You know, uh, we, we know, uh, or we have an indication of what's going to happen here, and... Let's say that this book ends with issue six, which I kind of hope it does. What do we get? What do we get? We get Krakoa plus gimmick? I mean, we had six issues of the Juggernaut, which gave us Krakoa plus D-Cell, and we haven't seen D-Cell since. Are we going to see gimmick? Is gimmick going to join the new mutants? Is gimmick... I mean, we don't even know if gimmick's actually a mutant yet. But, like, what is what is step two of this? What is going to make it so this was a worthwhile endeavor here? Because I hate to be the money guy, but I mean, we're four issues in, which is to say $17 before tax, you know, and that's American, out of our pockets for this. I don't know, I just, uh, it just feels uh, kind of unsatisfying. Um now let's talk about a few of my takeaways here. I don't have many, because, I mean, this is uh, basically the first three issues with a different coat of paint, you know? It's just from a point of view of another one of the characters here. We're getting inside these characters who we may never see again, so it's hard for me to invest. Um, let's see, we do have some parallels here that I want to address here. The bad guys, the U-men, if they are the U-men, uh, they're uh, co-opting mutant powers, right? They're trying to take the useful stuff, right? They're going to harvest organs, they're going to take blood samples. They're going to do whatever they can, taking the mutantism from the Kota kids, who they believe are mutants, in order to empower themselves. Well, there's kind of a parallel there between what the bad guys are doing and what the Kota kids are doing with Cole's pit sweat. Right? I mean, it's maybe not exactly like a one-to-one sort of thing here, but at its core, they're using mutant abilities for their own gain. Or I actually don't know what the Kota kids' gain would be, uh, just to go to Krakoa and snap a few pictures with their favorite X-Men, I guess. I don't know. But it is a use of, uh, of mutant power here. So there are parallels there. I'm not sure if they're... I'm not sure if there's something we're supposed to notice or just something that we or I did. I don't know. Uh, another thing here, and I hate using some of these terms, but uh, the Coda kids are presented as being, for lack of a better term, and, and trust me, I, I wanted to find a better term, but they're being presented as being woke, right? Uh, for Again, for a lack of a better term, of course. And yet here we are with the Coda kids sort of kind of appropriating mutant culture. Now, of course, a lot of this can be hand-waved, right? Because they are children, and children tend to be ethical, or people in general tend to be ethical when it suits them and maybe issue ethics when when it'll benefit them. So that might just be showing their the human condition a little bit, perhaps. But uh, it does feel a little bit uh, uneven, right? I think my main takeaway here is that this entire series is making me very sad. Now, despite the fact that I could care less what happens to any of these characters... 
I, I mean, it's it's still very sad. Uh, these kids are like in this weird cosplay fool's paradise, right? They're, you know, they're, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not here to, to shame anybody, but they, they remind me of like uh, people who, who claim to be furries, but just with the X-Men. It seems like a very lonely road they're headed down here, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's like you have ostracized kids who are only further ostracizing themselves. It's, again, kind of kind of sad. Maybe that's the whole point of this series. Maybe it's to uh, shine a light on a niche of a niche of a niche. Don't know. If, if that's the case, then maybe it'll be a success. I really don't know, but uh, in my opinion, for what very little that's worth, I... I really don't see a point to this, and uh, I don't think I've yet come away from an issue like feeling satisfied, feeling like I was happy or glad to have read what it was that we read. So I guess just take whatever I say with a with a shaker or two of salt, and uh, if you're enjoying this, more power to you, absolutely. If you are enjoying this, uh, let me know why. Tell me some of the reasons why you're digging this, and uh, maybe you'll be able to... Uh, uh, maybe not so much sway me, but uh, at least enlighten me as to maybe something that I'm overlooking that I should be paying more attention to, or maybe something that I'm spotlighting too, uh, I'm too focused on, right? That maybe I should just kind of let go. But uh, the art was nice. The art was nice. I'm a little disappointed that the uh, Marvel Wiki was wrong and <laughs> didn't have Tom Muller on uh, pencils here, because I-, I would like to see what his art would look like. I've uh, I've only seen his um, his logos, which are, of course, I mean, they are... The language of the Hox Pox Docs era, and they're, they're all very nice, so I was wondering what his pencils would look like. Maybe one of these days, or maybe I just need to actually Google it. Who knows? But uh, I think that's all I have to say about this issue. But before we cut out of here, let's hop into the mailbag. we got a couple of letters to discuss. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marvel Voices Legacy. Now he says, These anthologies are very X-Men Unlimited-ish. More vignettes than stories a lot of the time. Both of the X-related stories were perfectly fine. Of the two, I preferred the Storm story, but that's probably influenced by the fact that she's my favorite X-Man, and I really like Aletha Martinez's art. And yeah, that was kind of the uh, the watchword for the anthologies that we've covered of late. Uh, very X-Men Unlimited-ish. And... I think, I can't remember which episode it was, but I think I actually kind of uh, started pushing for the return of X-Men Unlimited because that's actually something I'd really like to see, uh, which I can't believe I'm saying after after suffering through, I think, a decade of X-Men Unlimited throughout the, the 90s and early 2000s, and then that, that second run of X-Men Unlimited, which was somehow even worse than the original I would like to see a return of X-Men Unlimited, if only because... I mean, look at the book we're talking about right now. We're talking about Children of the Atom, which I don't think merits, you know, 16 to 20 pages a month. Take eight pages of that, throw it in X-Men Unlimited. Maybe take uh, the Otherworld stuff that we're doing, throw that in X-Men Unlimited. Take X-Corp, throw that in X-Men Unlimited. We can actually get an anthology going of stories that... Maybe don't need entire books, in my opinion, of course. I don't think X-Corp needs to exist. I don't think Children of the Atom needs to exist. It's all bloat. It's all just inflating this uh, line of books to the point where everything feels inconsequential because everything's just so all over the place. But we cancel three or four of these books, launch an X-Men Unlimited, make it $5, make it $6, but you'll be saving us money in the long run, at least us completionists. 
and we'll be able to get more length out of these stories here. If we're if we're telling stories in eight page chunks here, but of course that's you know going to undermine the trade collections. But for an overall reading experience, I think it would be beneficial to have some of these stories that can't support again, in my opinion, their own ongoing or even their own miniseries. Present them in this X Men Unlimited anthology just to keep things uh, keep things brief, you know. And uh, I think they won't overstay their welcome because. Like I said, we're $17 American into Children of the Atom, and I'm not sure I've read $5 worth yet. You know, it's... I don't know. Uh, Damien continues, I do wonder why Domino was chosen for this anthology, as she doesn't really fit the theme of Heroes of Color. She's black in the Deadpool movies, so maybe they asked the writers to pitch a story about a black character, and they only knew about the movie version. Um, yeah, I think I think you get your no prize from that. I bet you. <laughs> I bet you that's right. I didn't know that uh, that, that, that Domino was even in the Deadpool movie. Because, I, I mean, that's totally out of my wheelhouse here. But uh, I, think, I think your argument there is uh, probably spot on. It was probably a writer who has never read a Domino story and saw the Deadpool movie and thought that uh, that was Domino, as far as the comics are concerned. And Marvel was a... Uh, too polite or, uh, I don't know, too nervous to correct them. So that's that. Uh, Damien continues. On to your discussion about the sales charts. I do still find that interesting, but really the key information is how the books are performing relative to each other. It really doesn't matter if a book goes up or down the rankings, as that can happen without any increase or decrease in sales, as it may just be that DC released more Batman books that month. It would be more interesting to if, say, New Mutants started selling better than Wolverine. And it's true. That's uh, just, unfortunately, the reality of the sales charts right now. We don't have numbers. We don't even have estimates, which really, really sucks. And your point is absolutely spot on here. We don't know. Because, like, if we have cable in March at number 50 and then cable in April at number 85, it might have sold the same amount of copies, but relative to what? I mean, everything else, you know, like you said, DC might have put out 15 new Batman books, which pushed everything else down. It's not a good metric. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's the only metric we have. It's uh, really just uh, the only information that they're willing to give us. Maybe when Marvel goes to Random House or Penguin or wherever the hell they're going, maybe then we'll get some numbers again. Um, I mean, it might it might take it out of the top 300 at Comicron, but... Uh, it might just be its own thing. And if it is its own thing, that's fine. I mean, we can... I'm just as fine talking about the top 50 Marvel books of the month because the Marvel books are really only competing with one another, right? I mean, as far as cancellations are concerned, I mean, if Wolverine starts selling better or worse than uh, Green Lantern, what does Marvel care? <laughs> it really doesn't care. Uh, but if Excalibur starts selling more than Wolverine, they might start to think, like, wow, is this happening, you know? So I am hopeful that eventually we'll get more usable data in our sales charts, because like you pointed out, and like I point out every time we discuss them, all we got are numbers. This is basically taking that one page out of Wizard Magazine back in 1992 and being like, these are the sales, <laughs> and not really knowing what to do with this information. Uh, Damien continues. My main takeaway is that we need more people to buy Marauders and Hellions. I don't want to see these books canceled. I also imagine that there must be a lot of completionists out there buying X-Men and not reading it because it really doesn't deserve to be the best seller most of the time. Agreed. Agreed 
uh, at the bottom of our sales charts are, um, well, we had uh, X-Factor, which is gone, Cable, which is also gone, Excalibur, which <laughs> somehow makes it, and Hellions, which I think, and I, I mean, I have no insider knowledge here, it's just my... Uh, you know, my 30-odd years of reading comics, uh, I think that Hellions will naturally wrap up or organically wrap up with Inferno. I think that that's just going to get us to Inferno, and then they will they will dump it. I hope not. Or if they do, I hope they give Zeb Wells something else to do because he's phenomenal. But uh, I don't think Hellions is long for the world, but I do think it's safe until Inferno because, uh, I mean, we got a lot of Maddie Pryor stuff in there that might... That might start to percolate, and we got Sinister doing some stuff, which, after reading the uh, Sinister Secrets in X-Men 21, tells me that uh, ah, there might be stuff brewing there that we're going to need to pay attention to. Um, X-Men selling the most? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it has a lot to do with completionism. I think it has a lot to do with people not wanting to, not wanting to dive all the way in. You know, if you're going to buy an X-Men book and all you want to do is buy one X-Men book, sadly, it's probably not going to be Marauders you're going to buy, right? Because if you're the kind of person who's going to read Marauders, you're going to read more than more than Marauders as it pertains to the X-Men. But if you're, you know, on the, on the fringes of X-Fandom or if you're just X-Curious, then if you're going to dip your toe in, you're probably going to do so with the actual flagship book, the one that says X-Men on the cover. I've talked to a handful of people who, um, who've asked me what's going on in the X-Books, and they say that, yeah, they buy X-Men, they just haven't read it in a little while. You know, and I mean, this is anecdotal to the extreme here, because it's been, like, literally four people who've told me this. So, really, in the grand scheme of things, not a huge number, not even a, not even a small number, actually. But I think you're right, is what I'm trying to, uh, trying to say here. I think uh, a lot of folks are buying X-Men just because it says X-Men. Maybe they're not reading it, maybe they're flipping through it. Maybe it's just remaining on their order list. Don't know. But I agree. Um, I mean, with the exception of maybe like two or three issues of it, uh, it does not deserve to be the top-selling book. But thank you so much for writing in and facilitating my petulant petition <laughs> that uh, X-Men Unlimited should come back. And uh, also for uh, discussing the sales charts here. I never know if that's anything that people want to actually hear. So it's it's nice to get some thoughts on those and uh, to be able to discuss at least at a surface level how these uh, books are doing, at least in comparison to one another. So thank you again, Damien. Uh, next up... We got Andrew talking about Hellions number 12. We're back in the Hellfire Gala here. He says, I'd be surprised if I didn't enjoy an issue of Hellions at this point. I kind of see this as a Hellions version of the Quiet issue. A little break from action plots and just giving us some character work set against the crossover backdrop. Zeb Wells really knows what he's doing with this book, and I really enjoyed this one. I found the Quinan and Betsy Braddock bit in the issue to be Wells putting that whole thing to bed. Quinan says she's come to terms with it, and I believe it. So I expect, at least in this series, that Quinan's story will move forward instead of leaning on revisiting Betsy's occupation of her body. Wells has done a lot of work in moving Quinan forward into an interesting character. Well, I'm not so sure that's true, unfortunately. I mean, not, not that Wells hasn't done a great job with Quinan, because he absolutely has. But we uh, have read in that Sinister Secrets in X-Men 21 that... We're probably not done with these two. You know, we have the Shattered Captain and the Sinister Sword, and uh, they're, they're going to keep doing this, I think. Now, uh, Andrew continues. With Alex, I get that they're probably going to be doing more with the Madeline Pryor plot, 
but I can't help but feel hung up on how they're writing him. Having him feel some kind of concern for Madeline would be fine, but to me it seems like they're just going to ignore everything that was done with him past 1989. They barely acknowledge that he and Lorna were in a long-term relationship, instead having him fixated on Madeline. He can barely speak his mind to Xavier and Magneto, and that behavior ignores the fact that Alex grew into a competent team leader during the 90s and beyond. He would definitely have the confidence to say exactly what he thought about the situation to these two, even if doing so would be out of line. Unfortunately, like Beast, character behavior is just whatever the editorial office wants it to be at this time, and we just have to grit our teeth and bear through it. At this point, I really hope that Madeline does factor into the coming storylines to justify all this. And you're right. You're right. Havoc is a bizarre case in this book. He might be the only character in this book that I'm kind of... I'm kind of iffy about, and I mean, we have a lot of theories about why Alex is in this book and is with this team, but, I mean, it's, something's going to happen in order, something's going to have to happen in order to pay it off, right? Uh, He and Lorna, I mean, I think it's being, um, it might be underselling it to say they were in a long-term relationship because they've been, they've been, like, attached at the hip for basically their entire existence, except for a little smattering here and there, but it does seem very bizarre that they're not really, they're really underplaying that. They're really not, uh, this is all about Alex and Madeline, who, at least relatively speaking, was barely a blip, right? She was around for just a little while, so it's very, very odd here. Having Alex not being able to, uh, get his thoughts out uh, eloquently to Xavier and Magneto. Bizarre. Bizarre. Uh, Xavier just kind of dismissing him. He's like, hey, here, here are your weirdo friends. Go go talk to them. Leave me alone. It was very strange as well. Uh, I think you're right, though. This is just something we're going to have to kind of just uh, bear down and uh, deal with until we get some answers. And I mean, I got a lot of faith in Zeb Wells. I, I, think, that, uh, I think that whatever he has in mind here, uh, so long as he has you know, when he's saying it, is going to be satisfying. It, it'll, it'll pay this off, and, uh, you know, fingers crossed that that is the case. Andrew continues, I think this issue could be described as inconsequential, but since I am a fan of the series, I found it to be a lot of fun, and so far, the best issue of the gala. Spoiler, from the few issues I've read beyond this one, this is still the best one to me. I like that Wells has the team just get into some trouble while continuing some of the characters' subplots and ending with a great tease for what's to come. So, until we get some explanation for why Magneto would wear that god-awful pimp suit, make my neck slapsed. Well, yeah, let's work backwards here. The pimp suit is absolutely atrocious. It might be, and I mean, this is covering a lot of ground here, it might be the worst Jumbo Carnation abomination at this point, right? It's, and, and it's not only bad from an aesthetic uh, standpoint, but from a Magneto standpoint, it, it, there's absolutely no way he'd, he'd dress like a clown. It's... Totally um, undermining the character here. That he, I mean, why not just have him in an actual clown costume? It's not a good look. Not a good look at all here. Uh, having the team get into all sorts of trouble here was great. Um, you know, we, I think we saw it devolving into a food fight, and we kind of sidestepped that. We just had it to where, I mean, this team, we haven't really seen them uh, cohabitate. With the Krakoans, right? They've been kind of off to the side. They're the problematic mutants. They're they're really not, they're not cohabitating. They're not socializing. I, I don't know that we even see them besides, you know, Havoc hanging out at the uh, Green Lagoon. Uh, have we seen anybody else from the team hanging out? Uh, 
I'm trying to think here. Maybe Grey Crow got a, got a few drinks there, but usually when they're out, they're together. You know, Havoc gets a pass because, you know, he can hang out with Cyclops and the gang, but we don't really get to see the Hellions uh, in some hanging out with the uh, the other Krakoans here. So it's neat to get little bits like Wild Child crossing paths with Aurora, right? It's not something we've seen before, and I think it's not something that a lot of people expected to see because a lot of people don't know their history. So the way that was presented was wonderful. Uh, actually, a good use of an info page here, just filling us in in a conversational, casual way about where these characters uh, where these characters were, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Having Wild Child run into Dak and Dakin was also pretty cool. Um, it was just, it was a good time. It was definitely a good time here. And so far, I, I definitely agree with you that uh, this is my favorite issue of the uh, of the Hellfire Gala so far. Um, I'm hoping I'm hoping that it gets beaten by one because I uh, I don't want to think that we peaked so early. But uh, I guess. Uh, I guess we will find out over the course of the next several episodes. But uh, thank you so much for writing in about one of our favorites here on the show, Hellions, a book that, uh, fingers crossed, will uh, continue being published well into the future. But that's going to do it for the mailbag today. If you would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, I would love for you to do so. I'm begging you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen, you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can write in to the old email uh, email address at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You could join the conversation on Facebook. You just search for 90s X-Men, no hyphens, no spaces, and you will find the X-Lapsed group. And I would love to see you... Uh, be a part of it and uh, join in on the uh, fun over there. Finally, for all your archival Chris and Reggie comics commentary and the entire X-Lapsed archives, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available anywhere the internet aggregates noise, so any of your listening devices and applications, you should be able to find us. If you can't, please let me know. But then again, if you can't, you're probably not listening to this, so uh, forget I said anything. Uh, Now, while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two, help get these numbers uh, back to where they were, (laughs) I guess. uh, It would really, really mean a lot to me, and it would really help the show out. Uh, Now, speaking of really meaning a lot to me, it means so much to me that you would continue to allow me to be a part of your day and occupy your ear space every so often. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.